So Joseph and Mary, um, they had traveled a hundred or so miles on foot. And at the end of walking for probably a little over a week, they still have a 4,000 foot climb up to Bethlehem. And then, remember she's very pregnant, right? And then, nowhere to stay, right? This is quite a dramatic moment, I can assume, for Joseph. Now, the details of this issue are pretty sparse. Just one verse, really. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. That's all that we have. I mean, all of these nativity traditions, they're all coming out of that one little phrase. Now, tradition has filled in the blanks imaginatively. Mary and Joseph knocking at the door of the local inn, being told there's no room, and then being offered a stable with the animals. And some of this is actually quite helpful that tradition gives us. And some of it is it's not so helpful. What is helpful is to know some of the pertinent cultural context. Luke, who wrote this account, was writing in Greek. And he had two words for our word in. He could have used the Greek word that indicated something like the type of in that you probably think of when you hear the word in. A public commercial establishment where you can temporarily stay when you're visiting somewhere. That's not the word he used. It's an unfortunate accident of history and linguistics that that's what our word in indicates. Instead, Luke uses another word, a word that signifies a guest room in someone's home. A room in someone's fairly simple family dwelling. And to stay there, you probably would know the owner. Now, remember, this is Joseph's ancestral land. He more than likely had relatives there. He would have known people there. Here's how it worked. A typical Palestinian family would have had a house with a larger family room and then a smaller room for the animals. The rooms would have been adjacent to one another. They would have been built on a slope, which is important when animals are adjacent to your room. Um, And the animals would have been slightly lower than the humans. They would have shared a wall. So those who had maybe a little more money, they would have actually had a third room, an upper room, higher than the family room. That was the guest room. This is the word that Luke uses. So they had traveled all of this way, and apparently the Facebook message didn't get through. Or for whatever reason, they get there and there's no room in that kind of... There's, there, all of the, the family, all of the friends have already let out their extra rooms. And this is the reason that Mary and Joseph are given a place to stay, not in a barn, but in the lowest room. In that room that adjoins the family room where the animals stay, where there happened to be a manger which came in quite handy quite quickly. That's a funny thing. Luke's telling of the birth of Christ. Three times he mentions the manger. Now, this is striking. 
I mean, for a book of such literary discipline as Luke's gospel to continually return to this piece of furniture. It's almost like Luke, the, the author of this gospel, who, who is an excellent literary artist. It's like Luke, the author, is pointing with his finger to something that he wants you to see. Now, why does he keep pointing to the manger? Well, to answer this question, we have to see that from the very first words of Luke's gospel, Luke has been insisting in various direct and indirect ways that the story of Jesus is the climactic moment of a much larger story. It, it, it is the arrival point. If, if that's why we had to start way back in Genesis. That's why we needed a narrator. We needed to see that all of this is of a whole. All of this fits together. In fact, just two chapters after Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, he gives Jesus' genealogy. And where does he trace it back? All the way to Adam. He's saying to understand Jesus, you have to go back to the beginning. You have to go back to creation. Now, when we started the first lesson in Carol, Russ told us the story of Christmas begins when? At the dawn of creation. When God created the world and he commissioned men and women to be his stewards over creation. Now, to know why Luke mentions the manger three times, you have to know that the story of which Jesus' birth is this story. It is this climactic moment. In the beginning, men and women were given this high calling as God ruled over them and, and cared for them. They were to do what with creation? They were to rule over creation. They were to care for creation. But then, one of the animals that they were to rule over One of those animals, a serpent, tempted their pride with an offer to become as God was. And they took the offer. And in that moment of rebellion, God's world was turned upside down. Instead of obeying God and wisely ruling over creation, they tried to rule over God and under creation. They obeyed an animal. Instead of ruling over the animals, the humans followed the least of all the animals. Instead of becoming like God, they fell into sin and behaved like brutes. Adam and Eve failed as God's stewards of creation with the animals. So in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus to set everything right. To return humankind's allegiance to God. To usher in God's peaceable kingdom. When what would happen? As Isaiah said, when the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. That's why three times. Luke points to an animal stall. That's why 
Three times Luke says, where is Jesus? Look where he is. Look where he's come to. That's why the shepherds find Jesus in a manger. Where better to begin his rule than at the very place where the human's rule of creation was shattered. What Adam and Eve failed to do, this little child would lead us to do. Now, remember how I said there were helpful and unhelpful aspects to the traditional conception of the nativity. Let me show you one very helpful one. Take your worship guide and look on the cover. Botticelli's marvelous um, painting right at the beginning of the 16th century called the mystical nativity. Now... Botticelli is doing a lot of strange things here. Did you notice the disproportionate um, scale of Mary and the baby Jesus? Right, if Mary stands up, she's going to hit her head on the roof. Do you see that? If she, do you see that the baby Jesus is a giant? Okay, what, what he's doing there is he's tipping his hand that he is not doing realism. He is painting symbolism. He's got an agenda. That's why that's one of the reasons it's called a mystical nativity, because he's saying things through the way he's bending the laws of nature. There's more than that. There's there's the scrolls that are wrapped around the olive branches. There's the angels embracing humans. I love how on the right side of the painting, the angel and the human embracing are far apart. And then the second one, they're closer. And the third one, they're even closer. You get a sense of the movement. Look in the Bible. When humans go from west to east, it is always a downward place. They get kicked out of Eden and sent east. Lot settles in the east. Every time there's movement east in the Bible, bad things are at play. They're moving farther and farther away from God. But when there's movement from the east to the west, like the Magi coming from the east, going back to the west. And here in this movement, you see that as you travel east, the movement is God coming closer and closer to man. You see, if you count, there are seven little demons scurrying into holes in the ground. There's the sky opening to reveal The golden light of heaven. There's so much going on. But what I want you to particularly notice is the animals. What animals are in this nativity? Uh, That's not a preacher question. You can answer out loud. It's a real question. What animals? It's a donkey and a... Well, if, if... An ox. Thank you. Looks like one of our cows, but it's one of their ox. And what are they doing? The donkey is eating from the crib, from the trough. And the ox is doing what? He's looking. Where's the ox looking? He's looking at Jesus. Now, I suspect that some of you have nativity scenes set up in your house. And there is a strong chance that if you have a nativity scene, there are three sets of animals. There's sheep, there's an ox, and there's a donkey. The sheep there because... Why? No, because the good shepherd is there. That's why there's always sheep there. That's why the shepherds are there. Now, this is a tradition to have an ox and a donkey and to have them in these positions. It's not in the Bible. Perhaps you notice Luke doesn't even say if there were animals or not. 
Much less what kind of animals. And yet over and over in the history of painting, especially since the 13th century, I looked at some of the most remarkable paintings getting ready for this. And almost every painting I looked at of the nativity, starting around the 13th century forward, there was a donkey either eating straw out of the crib, the manger, the trough, or oriented toward it in some way. And there was always an ox not eating out of the trough, but looking at the child. What's going on here? Once again, the key is to know the story. A few moments ago, I quoted from Isaiah's great prophecy about the the lion laying down with the lamb and the child. That comes from Isaiah chapter 11. But at the very beginning of Isaiah's book, in chapter 1, listen to these words. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up. But they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Do you see it? Do you see? I love how St. Ambrose, the Archbishop of Milan in the late 4th century, I love how he put it in in a sermon on this passage. He asked, when you look at the nativity... I know that you hear the cries of an infant, but do you hear the lowing of an ox recognizing his master? For the ox knows his owner and the donkey his master's crib. You see, the medieval painters, they are giving us visual theology. That's why the ox is there. That's why the donkey is there. That's why the donkey is always eating or oriented toward the the trough, the crib. And that's why the ox is always oriented toward the creator. And as Scott just read to us from Matthew's gospel, Jesus' life was filled with people who recognized him and with people who didn't. People who were too proud To know what simple, brute beast knew. People too proud to admit that they needed a savior. People who felt that they were getting by well enough on their own without him. So they rejected their their creator. But there were many others who welcomed him. People who knew they needed God's healing. People who knew they needed God's intervention to restore their dignity. That's why outcasts and undesirables follow Jesus. They come to Jesus. Why? To become human again. But it's not just the outcast. It's not just the marginalized. What about the wise men? They were in no way marginalized. These were not outcasts. They were rich. They had gold and frankincense and myrrh. We know little about them except that they were magi, ancient philosophers from the east where the Jews had lived in exile. And during that time, we can presume that the school of the magi became familiar with the ancient prophecies of the Jewish Messiah. And from then on, they began to watch the stars and to wait for him. What's most surprising about these wise men is their humility. Humility. 
We don't have many examples today of people who are wealthy, brilliant, and genuinely humble. In the Bible, however, wisdom and humility consistently go together. The academy is not often considered the paragon of meekness and humility. But right at the center of the Christ story are wise men who are marked by remarkable humility. Because in the Bible, wisdom and humility go together. Wisdom is ultimately expressed in terms of reverence for God, allegiance to God. Wise men and women, from God's perspective, are those who swallow their pride and admit their need for a Savior. Jesus rose from the dead on Easter, and now He lives and reigns as the Prince of Peace. And he invites all people, men and women of every race and tribe and tongue, people of intellect and people of money like the wise men, people without means like the shepherds, teenagers like Mary. All of us are invited. Put your faith in him and he will make you human again. He will restore your dignity He will reconcile you to God. He will give you freedom from your sins. Follow the wise men to Jesus. Lay your life and your treasure before him this Christmas. In the presence of such royalty, we can set aside our pride. We can stop pretending in our own abilities. Wise men and wise women worship the Christ. Do you see this child? was wrapped like a loaf of bread and laid in a piece of furniture that was designed to feed. Do you see in the manger is the bread of life who has come for all? And those of us who believe in Him, we can be like simple creatures recognizing our bread, recognizing where life is, recognizing our Master's crib. We've heard how the shepherds responded, glorifying and praising God. We've heard how the wise men responded, humbly searching for God and then finding Him and worshiping Him. We've heard how Herod and Jerusalem responded, troubled and resistant. We've seen how Mary responded, reflective, pensive, contemplative. What is your response? You see, this book is not a rag bag of moral principles that protect the vested interest of the ruling class in America. This book is a a narrative. It's a story. But it's not merely a story rendering a historical account. It is a story that demands your response. What is it? How are you responding? Take a moment. And then I'll lead us in prayer. What is your response?